Very good evening to all of you. I have looked forward to this evening for quite some time. When Josh called and asked if I'd be willing to come down here and speak, uh, well, actually he emailed, and I was delighted to hear of the opportunity. I, I would be remiss if I didn't take a minute or two, if you will uh, indulge me, to just speak kind of personally um, to you all. I, I, I just want to say thank you all. You're a wonderful group of saints. So many of you are good friends of mine. I've known some of y'all for a great many years. And and I just want to say, if you don't know, uh, I guess maybe about two or three years ago, I was in need financially. I was in a situation where I was being supported by a congregation I just was no longer comfortable being supported by. And standing right back there in the auditorium, I was talking to a couple of the brethren here, and they said, we'll take care of that. And I was able to re- remove myself from that relationship, which was toxic, and become involved in the relationship with you all. And you all support me, and I appreciate My family appreciates it. The work in Georgetown, I hope, <laughs> appreciates it. Uh, I've seen a lot of growth there. Just to give you a quick update, uh, if you're not noticing in the letters, we are getting ever closer to establishing elders. We're in, uh, in the middle, of, well, just started, I guess I should say, a special series of lessons with Brother Eddie Pagan, who preaches in Paris, a uh, six-week study on Monday nights, and we're working towards elders. I think we're close, and Josh knows a lot about that congregation. He's He's loved there probably more than even I am. Uh, he preached there many years. He was the preacher at Central before me. Uh, and so I, I'm encouraged by the work there, and it's growing, and uh, it's thriving. And so I just appreciate so much your all's continued support of me and my family and the work that we're doing in Georgetown. And that's not why you're here. You know that. You're here to, to worship God. We've, we've entered into his gates with thanksgiving when Brother Tom prayed for us. We've been, we've been praising him in song, so we've entered into his courts with praise, as Psalm 100 tells us. And now we're here to sit down at the feet of God. Not my feet, but the feet of God, and to listen to his word. He's going to instruct us. He's going to teach us of the things that we need to know that pertain to life and godliness. And, and this is an important part of our worship. You didn't come to hear me. You came to hear the word of God uh, speak to you. And, and I pray that I will do so in a way that is pleasing to God and and worthy of uh, the task that I have been given. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, this is not our text for the night. Uh, you can, I hope you can see on the screen, Josh told me that my formatting of my, my slides were different. If you've never worshipped with us at Central, our building is about a, maybe oh, a half of this size, and, and we meet this way. We would put the pulpit here, and so we all sit about 10 feet from the wall. So I've got great big slides on either side of me, uh, and so you, you have to be about as blind as a bat to not see. And so this is a little bit of distance. For those of you in the back, maybe you can't see. Uh, we want to talk about reverence and worship tonight. But in Matthew chapter 6, just, just as a note to start, Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's in the model prayer. When Jesus taught us that, he taught his disciples and consequently us, and he taught us that that we can know how to go about things on earth by looking at the example set in heaven, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's pretty simple to understand, that we can look at the pattern in heaven and understand how certain things might need to look, if you will, here on earth. And Isaiah tells us, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, of a vision that he had of the seraphim worshiping God in heaven. And he tells us all about it in Isaiah chapter 6. And I'd like to read that with you if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This will be our text for the evening. We want to read of a heavenly example of worship. And so like Jesus admonished us to do in Matthew chapter 6, we want to look to how it was done in heaven and then see if we can pattern or model our worship here after that. Let's read Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. 
In that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. And your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Just an amazing just visual that we see here. But Isaiah is, is given this opportunity to see worship in heaven. Now, the seraphim were, and I guess you could say are still angelic beings that were actually seen here by Isaiah worshiping God in heaven. Like I said, a remarkable picture. And their example that we see here, their example shows that real worship of God in heaven isn't characterized by raucous frivolity, as many of our denominational friends may engage in, or or even laid-back fellowship, as others that we may know may be engaged, or, or any such thing. No, rather, true worship of our Heavenly Father is characterized by reverence. That's the characteristic we see, especially in verse 2, that we're going to examine in greater detail in just a moment. Let me speak to this. Reverence is, if you want to have a definition, reverence is demonstrating that we attach a sacred significance to a person or a thing. For example, consider the reverence demonstrated during the national anthem. Right? There's been a whole lot of controversy with the National Anthem and the NFL here uh, of late months. But, but think about that, or maybe think about the reverence shown or demonstrated at a Memorial Day service, or even at a national or a military monument or something such as that. When you think about that situation, there's, it's often characterized, that reverence, by, by quietness or contemplative attitudes or or, or, or the demonstration by uh, the removal of, of headwear by men, or the silencing of voices and electronics, and often bowed heads and hearts. That's reverence. That's by definition reverence. And so when, when applied to gathering with God's people, as we have done even this evening, in God's house to worship God, it means demonstrating that we have attached sacred significance to what we're doing through similar actions and attitudes. But I'm afraid, in my observation, that most in the church show more reverence for a statue made of stone than for the worship of the living God. Everyone gets so upset, and, and I got so exhausted with all this national anthem stuff, I just turned off the TV. Everybody gets so upset when people don't stand up for, for a ten, at attention for a red, white, and blue banner but they don't even flutter an eyelid when the worship of Almighty God is just casual and laid back. Among the body of Christ, I have observed more reverence, and I'm not being judgmental, but I have observed more reverence 
for deceased military personnel than for Jesus, our risen living Savior. Now, I'm not here to fuss. That's certainly not my intention. Just so you know, I have already presented this lesson to the saints at Central. Now, I fussed at them a little bit because I have the, the right to do so, you might say. I'm here to encourage and, and admonish you all and, encourage, and edify and, and say, I want to challenge, maybe I should say, to, to, for us to, to modify our actions and to modify our attitudes to be more aligned with the divine and less with the temporal. I'd like to take a look at Isaiah chapter 6 in more detail and see what we can learn from the example of the seraphim here in this passage and and see what we can learn as to how we show our reverence for God in worship. First, let us begin by noticing the first way we can demonstrate our reverence for God in worship is by our attitude. Now, it it seems to be just a, a, a... it's a random fact when you read chapter 12, uh, 2, uh, verse 2 of chapter 6, what the, the seraphim look like. But there's significance to these three pairs of wings, these six wings. Because with the first pair of wings, these seraphim are covering their faces. Now that's significant. There's a reason why Isaiah was shown this and there's symbolism here. In the covering of the faces by the seraphim, they show that they approach the throne of God with an attitude of humility. That would be a sign that would show that they recognized that theirs was an awesome privilege to be around the throne of God. And in so doing, they they continually were giving praise, but doing so with their faces covered to demonstrate humility. Oh, how we need to to recapture an attitude of, 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 of humility in our worship services within the body of Christ that reflects an awareness of the wonderful privilege that is ours. Whenever two or more are gathered in His name, He is there. We have gathered, if you will, around the throne of God to worship Him. And here we see the seraphim covering their faces in humility. Now, I understand, when we gather together to worship, it's not a gathering on the same level as a as a get-together at the ballpark, but I have seen brethren do so and act that way. It's not like a, a get-together at the movie theater or some other public public place. It's not just a social event. When we come together with God's people in God's house, we are gathered together before God's throne. We are the household of God. We are God's people. We have assembled to worship. Question for you this evening, how is your worship attitude? What's your attitude about worship? David's attitude, if you'd like to be turning over to Psalm 5, as you see on the screen behind me, and put a marker there in Isaiah 6, we'll be back to it in just a minute. But if you would like to turn over to Psalm chapter 5, we can see David's attitude towards worship. And I want to suggest it was obvious. It's not hard to miss how David viewed worship here. In Psalm 5, verse 7, David says, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Now, we're not talking fear like some of you might be afraid of spiders or clowns or something. We're talking of frogs. Uh, for Tiffany there. I, the only person in the world I know who's afraid of frogs. There we go. David says, in awesome, reverent respect and fear, I will worship you. That was his attitude. Indeed, indeed, as indicated by the psalmist, one practical way that my attitude towards worship is revealed is by my attendance. Now you're saying, oh boy, here goes the preacher. He's going to get on an attendance kick. Yeah, I am for a second. Because Paul got on, well, assuming Paul wrote Hebrews, he got on a kick here in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 25. 
We know it says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We understand that, and that's rightfully applied, and when we look at our tenets, and that's exactly what it's about. But my friends, we need to understand that we demonstrate our attitude towards worship by the very fact if we're even here to worship. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, but perhaps you know some who need some encouragement in this area. came across a quote that made me chuckle when I first saw it, and I'll share it with you now. Kent Hughes says, on the most elementary level, you do not have to go to church to be a Christian. He says, you do not have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, if you do not, you will have a very poor relationship. Now, my friends, if you think about the simple truth of that, we understand when we assemble, we are coming to pay homage and worship God, show our worth of Him. American Christians talk of of having freedom to worship God, but the government doesn't give us that freedom. God gives us that freedom. He's provided us in Christ that freedom with forgiveness of sins and the freedom to approach His throne. Yes, our laws and constitution protect that freedom. I understand that. But let me ask you, and some of you all here, like Danny, have traveled to foreign countries to preach the gospel, but if you lived in a country where it's illegal to do exactly what you're doing right now, would you still do it? Now, all y'all make a yes, and that's good, because that's exactly what I'd say, but I've never lived in a country where it's illegal to do what we're doing right now. Easy to say yes when we're not worried about, you know, police officers coming in and arresting, but we got to think about that. What, if, what about a little something easier? What if you had to walk a few miles to church? I know of some situations where brethren in, in this world have to walk to church two, three, four miles one way. See, my friends, we are... I think it's fair to say, rather spoiled, aren't we? As American Christians, we are rather spoiled. And it's, it, it, it has led to, in my opinion, as I have observed, the sin of taking for granted the privilege of public worship of our God. Our attitude towards worship needs to demonstrate humility and the importance that we place upon what we're doing. That is one way. But we can also demonstrate reverence for God and worship by our attire. Now, I'll bet you didn't see that one coming from this passage, but I think this is important to understand. Because the seraphim, with two wings, they covered their face, and with two, they covered their bodies. Remember, they got three pairs. So one pair is covering the face, one pair is covering their feet or their bodies, some translation says. Dr. Paige Kelly, who's a whole lot smarter than me, in his commentary, the Broadman Bible commentary, points out the phrase covering their feet or covering their body is a euphemism referring to modesty. They're covering themselves with their wings. And this illustrates, this symbol illustrates how we show reverence for worship by the way that we present ourselves or the way we dress our attire. Now at this point, it might be a little bit helpful for context to understand the history of dressing up for church. You know, putting on your Sunday best. You know, there's actually some history to that. And I I didn't know this. I had to do a little researching. You might be surprised to learn that dressing formally, right, in these types of of garments is actually a relatively new or young practice. It doesn't come from the New Testament, actually. Um, Dressing up for church became a very popular practice. It really got traction in, in the first half of the 19th century in England. So early 1800s. 
and England, it spread to northern Europe and then obviously hopped the pond over here to America. And as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of the middle class, dressing up for church became the custom. I thought that was kind of interesting because if you look at history, just for your knowledge, medieval Christians, kind of in that time between the, the first century church and where the, the history kind of gets fuzzy, and then when you get to the, the 1800s, Christians before the 1800s didn't have, had no custom of dressing up for church because nice clothes were only afforded by the wealthy. Right? They are the only ones who could afford it. And so when Christians first began to dress formally for worship, many actually preached against it. Can you imagine the preacher getting up here and saying, don't wear those nice suits and ties? I can't see Josh preaching that. I know he likes his ties. Interestingly enough, I came across a quote from Brother Alexander Campbell. We would refer to him as a great preacher of the Restoration Movement. He's quoted as saying, Kings and prophets, the saints and martyrs of other times were oftener seen in sackcloth and ashes than in the gaudy fashions of a flippant and irreverent age. I love how he writes. Their sense of propriety forbade that soul and body should disagree, that the outward man should betray the inward and falsify the state of the mind. The Jews' religion taught men congruity, and especially that the exterior attire should always correspond with the inward plainness and simplicity of the heart. He, he got up on his soapbox about this. He preached against dressing up to come to church. He actually went on to, to say that Christians should dress in the plainest and most unassuming garb, especially when they come before a righteous and holy God in worship. Well, when you start to talk about this, and I've actually had people preach at me about what you're supposed to wear at church, and well-assuming Christians, well-meaning Christians, maybe I should call them, will argue for formal dress with questions like, well, if you met the President of the United States, wouldn't you dress in your finest clothes? And I, and I, I don't argue with that point, because at first glance that sounds very right. But think about this. When you tuck your children in at night, into bed, and say a prayer with them, is that okay? I mean, even though they're lying in bed in their pajamas, is it okay to go before God in prayer if they're not dressed in their Sunday best? Is it okay for me to pray while I'm mowing the grass in my work clothes? Is it okay for me to to sing praises to God as I'm driving down the road in a dirty t-shirt and blue jeans? I've never once said, no, wait a second, I can't do that. i got to go in and put on my shirt and tie. Believe it or not, I knew of a preacher who cut his grass with a push mower and a shirt and tie every time because he didn't want to be seen not dressed in his best. But my friends, kind of clothes doesn't permit us or restrict us from approaching God. So please understand that God doesn't live in brick and mortar buildings such as this, like he did in the days of the tabernacle and the temple. In fact, Paul, in preaching to the, the folks in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, tells us that God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. You know, he said that with right over his shoulder, the massive temple built to Athena there in Athens, the Parthenon was right over his shoulder, right behind him. He said, God doesn't dwell in buildings like that. No, he dwells in our hearts. So to insist or to bind that we must dress differently to pray in the church building than we do when we pray elsewhere is to imply that God only lives in the church building. No, we don't go to the church building to just meet God, we go to meet our church family, our brothers and sisters, and worship with them 
The same God we've been serving and praising all week individually and with our families. That's what we do on the first day. We assemble to worship. So we don't have to dress up then. You're saying, hey, the preachers have said I can come in whatever I want. Well, hang on. Let's see what we can learn from the example of the seraphim. Recall that they had two wings covering their bodies and their feet. I think the lesson we can learn here is do not let your attire distract others from God. Some will say, well, we're free in Christ to do whatever we want to. Well, that's a very potentially destructive attitude that Satan will hijack every chance he can. Not everything that you may be at liberty to do may be good or helpful. We should think about others in everything that we do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I need you to turn there and see with me what Paul says to this point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 23 and 24, Paul speaking here to this church that had quite a bit of problems in an area that had even more problems. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. There's a principle here. And when we combine that with what we can see here in our text from Isaiah chapter 6, you need to ask yourself when you're getting dressed to come to worship, Ask yourself, is what I'm wearing appropriate for the occasion? It's not that hard to do. You do it every single day. Every single day you get up to go to work or school, you ask yourself, am I dressed appropriate for the work I do? If you're going to um, a wedding, am I dressed appropriately? If I'm going to a business luncheon, do I dress? am I dressed appropriately? Or, or if I'm going out to play ball with my friends, am I dressed right? And if you're not, you go back and you make adjustments, Right? But my friends, the occasion of worship, what you did this morning, what you're doing tonight, the occasion of worship puts you in the presence of the living, reigning God of heaven. So honestly, are your shorts and flip-flops appropriate to be in the presence of the living, reigning God of heaven? Are your dirty t-shirts and torn jeans appropriate For the occasion, is your skimpy, low-cut, or too-short skirt appropriate for the occasion of worshiping the living, reigning God of heaven? Now, if you're offering your best in worship to the one who gave his best, well, then worship away. That's fine. But if you're not, and you know when you're not, you need to go back and make adjustments. The seraphim show us that they... They, they approached the throne in such a way as to not distract by covering themselves with their wings. They want nothing of themselves to distract from the occasion of worship. We can also show our reverence for worship by our activity in worship. Two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their body, their feet. And with two, they were flying. So with these other two wings, this third pair, the seraphim, are making sure that the throne of God is their constant focus, as should we when we assemble to worship. Our constant focus should be God. We've come to worship God. We should be constantly focused on God when we've come to assemble. That's giving the first fruits of our time. Let me give you two rules that can help. You'll see up here on the wall behind me. Two rules that can help in this area when it comes to considering our activity in worship. Rule number one is do not let your activity 
distract others from God. If what you're doing right now as we are worshiping God is distracting, you need to stop. There's kind of a, it's not really a joke, it's actually kind of an aggravating situation for me. We have one member at Central who's kind of a grandmother, and she has a great big Bible case, and in it she's got a huge pocket full of candy, individually wrapped candy, and it has now become, to my annoyance, the thing to pass the Bible around church, and everybody's digging in, grabbing candy, and you hear all this plastic wrappers, and I'm like, stop it, please, it's distracting. Unwrap your candy beforehand, or get candy without wrappers, and it's kind of a light situation, but I'm serious. It's distracting. Things like passing notes and getting up and down in the, during worship and, and allowing children to misbehave. What about falling asleep? You all don't know, but it's pretty distracting when you see the members dropping off. You know, I, we joke about them agreeing with the preacher, but you can tell when you're nodding off. What about checking message and playing on your phone? What about just allowing your electronics to sound off? You know, your phone, you forgot to silence it. I put mine on airplane mode just because I don't want any distraction. But, you know, that includes baby toys. How many times in the middle of a service does some kid push a button on a toy and it starts playing, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb? We chuckle about that, but that's distracting. That takes our focus off of God. My friends, these are activities, and there's a whole list we can give. These are activities that we need to avoid because they can distract Others from being focused on God during worship. We we got to be make sure we're not like the man who went to the doctor. He went to the doctor. Hey doc, I need some help. I got I need help to stop snoring. You got to help me quit snoring. The doctor says, Well, is your snoring disturbing your wife? He replied, Well, no, it's not so much disturbing her. Is it really that it embarrasses her? It's all the other members of church that it disturbs. My friends, we can't let our activities distract our brothers and sisters when we have assembled to worship God. You have to be considerate. The second rule is do let your activity demonstrate love for God. Your brothers and sisters, I'm looking at all of you right now. I should look around and see that your activity demonstrates love for God. And I see that almost 100%. I see a little bit of other things, and that's just life. Sometimes things happen. But your brothers and sisters should see that you love the Lord, by your activities. They should see you sing with spirit. They should see you give with compassion and extend a warm greeting. I love the receiving line of all the men when I come out. I love that. That's beautiful. They should see you turn to scriptures in your Bible. I know a lot of times it's on phones now, so they should see you flip into your scriptures. I love to hear the ruffle of pages, though. Every preacher loves that. They should see you praying earnestly. And saying amen respectfully at the end of your prayers. They should see you staying engaged the entire time that we have assembled here to worship God. I mean, you have to stop and consider your effect on other congregants. Paul says over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, he says, Do not quench the Spirit. He instructs all disciples, first there in Thessalonica and us secondarily, do not quench the Spirit. Do you know what that means? That means do not subdue or be unresponsive to the working and guidance of the Holy Spirit, especially among the assembly of worshipers. Listen to that again. Do not subdue or be unresponsive to the working and guidance of the Holy Spirit, especially among the assembly of worshipers. 
Our responsiveness influences others for good and bad. I have a poem for you, and this is tacky. I don't ever use my phone in service, but I forgot to print this off. So I had to call somebody, and they texted me a picture of a poem. And so I'm going to read it off my phone. Just listen to this. The title of the poem is called Consider Yourself. It goes like this. A lost man went to church one day. The devil went there too. An usher led him way down front to a large and nearly vacant pew. The congregation sang of God's great love and the people bowed in prayer. As the preacher spoke of going to heaven, the lost man knew he wanted to go there. The sermon ended all too soon. The people began stirring in their seats. As the preacher said, if you'd like to be saved, come forward, kneel at the master's feet. Now a man and his wife, by the lost man's side, worship, uh, whispered of dinner and getting on home, while a still small voice to an aching heart said, trust in me and your sin will be gone. They said to each other, our dinner might get cold, let's slip out past that fellow right there. Before the assembly dismissed, out the door they went, of the lost man, what did they care? But the devil stayed in the church that day, till the very last verse was sung. For a person was lost between heaven and hell, and his soul in the balances hung. The devil said, stay! The Lord said, come! For the lost man was about to repent, when the man and his wife squeezed by him, down the aisle and out the door they went. The devil was grateful to two Christians that day, for the lost man left church unforgiven, because they didn't have the patience to stay, the devil kept one more soul from heaven. I know that's just a poem, but it speaks a powerful truth, doesn't it? Had those two people taken a bit more consideration, perhaps, maybe in that story, the circumstances would have been different. But what I want you to see, that when we gather to worship God, we need to be centered on the throne of God and on things of eternal importance. I love how at the beginning the brother said, let's clear our minds of extra thoughts and cares. Absolutely. I hope you didn't let them back in. I don't care if I preach a minute. You better not let that back in. You're here to worship God. May your activity in worship not distract others from God, but demonstrate your love for God and encourage their response to God. You never know. You never know how God may use your life this moment to influence a lost soul for good. You never know who's watching. I don't know which ones of you have obeyed the gospel. I have no clue. I never know how my life can be used by God for good or how Satan may use your life and your influence for evil. You just don't know how that's going to happen. So you need to make sure that we show reverence for God when we worship by our activity. My friends, as we close, I think some of y'all got scared when I said go to midnight. <laughs> it's okay. We're going to close up now. Let's go back to the reverent worship that we saw in our original text there in Isaiah chapter 6. Let's think about this. Do you know the root word from which the seraphim derive their name? Do you know the root word in the Hebrew means to burn, to be on fiery? On fire. So seraphim literally means fiery ones or burning ones. My friends, I'd like to suggest to you that the reverence shown by the seraphim is seen in their focus on the throne. It's because of their focus that they're on fire. It's not literal flames. 
It's passion. It's fervent love and passion for the Lord. My friends, the same will be true of us if we are involved in reverent worship, just like we see going on in heaven here in Isaiah chapter 6. Worship is the time when we, the participants, we're the participants, assembled to show God, the audience, just how much he means to us. We're the participants, he is the audience. We've assembled to show him how much he means to us. Please, please reflect. Does your attitude, does your attire, your presentation, does your activity in worship demonstrate love and gratitude and a high estimation of God? Or does it demonstrate something else? Worship of God Almighty is the most important thing you will do all week. That's why we do it on the first day. It's the first fruits. It's the most important thing you're going to do all week. I guarantee that. Short of maybe obeying the gospel if you haven't done that. That might come in as a a very, very close second. I would like to encourage you to adjust your attitude, to adjust your attire and your activity. If it doesn't match, if it's not appropriate, adjust it accordingly. Samuel Chadwick has a quote here on the wall behind me. Destitute of the fire of God, nothing else counts. Possessing fire, nothing else matters. My friends, we need to be on fire for the Lord. We should be fiery ones, passionate with zeal and enthusiasm for serving the Lord. We have a hymn in our, on our supplements, Light the Fire. And I know you all probably know that song, most of you all. Light the fire, rekindle that, be on fire for the Lord. I'd like to finish with just a reading from Romans chapter 12. It's on the screen, you don't have to turn to it. Romans chapter 12, verse 11 says, Stay excited about your faith as you serve the Lord. When you hope, be joyful. When you suffer, be patient. When you pray, be faithful. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Welcome others into your home. My friends, stay excited. Stay on fire for the Lord. And if you're not, fan the flame. Let somebody help fan that flame. Josh or some of the men here, somebody can help that. Sit down, study, pray, get into the Word. Find that passion that you had at one time when you first committed your life to the Lord. Be on fire for the Lord. And if you're not... Get there. If you're not a child of God, though, you don't even have a flame to speak of. Maybe there's a spark, though. Perhaps you love the Lord. You believe in Jesus Christ as a Son of God. You know that He's a Son of God and He died for your sins. And believing that, maybe you're right there ready to confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Saying, I believe Jesus is a Son of God. That's what it means to confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Doing that, if you're willing to turn away from your current situation, living away from God and to turn back to God, that's repentance. If you're willing to do that, to confess and to repent, water's prepared. You can be born again this very night, baptized into the water grave of baptism, putting to death the old man, the old woman, the old boy, the old girl of sin, and to be raised to walk in newness of life. That's how we obey the gospel. You realize the gospel is a set of historic facts, right, that Jesus died, was buried, and raised on the third day. That's, that's history, right? That's a fact. How do, you re, how, do you, how do you obey a factual event, historical event? 
Well, you reenact it. We die to sin, we're buried in the waters of baptism, we're raised to walk in newness of life. We are baptized for the remission of sins. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, that he died, he shed his blood for the remission of sins. So it's in the watery grave of baptism, we come into the contact with the blood of Jesus Christ, and our sins are washed away. It begins with faith, that's when the conception begins, and it is completed when we're born again. If you desire to do that, you have an opportunity tonight. And I hope you can be motivated tonight because you have passion and love and fire for God. But if that doesn't motivate you, maybe you need to think about the fact that it won't be very long till Jesus returns. We don't know when he's going to come as a thief in the night. If you are a gambling type, then gamble away. You don't know if you're going to make it home on these slippery roads. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. He's coming back. He's promised to come back and get us. He's right now preparing the bridal suite for his, his own. He's pr- preparing it for us. He's coming back. He promised it. And I put my faith in that promise, as I think you do too. But if you're not prepared for him to come tonight, if your lamps are not trimmed and bright, you have an opportunity right now to do so as together we stand to sing.